Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Hey church, uh, we are glad you're here today. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH and uh, we're just happy that you're here. We're continuing in our, uh, our series called I Am He through the Gospel of, uh, of John. And uh, uh, I want to real quick before we hop in, I just want to call attention to the fact that next weekend we have a, uh, an angry Scotsman coming to, uh, to teach us all, which we're excited about. Uh, Gilbert Foster, for those of you who are familiar with Gilbert, will be here next week. Yeah, good. Um, I will pass on that smattering of applause to him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Gilbert's going to be in next week and teach in, and it's part of our whole push uh, during the month of October regarding missions and missions in general. Um, and so uh, obviously Gilbert does a whole lot of work with international missions and fundraising and that sort of thing. And so he's going to come next week. We're going to take a break from the book of John actually next week. Um, and uh, he is going to come and just share his heart. And I am so excited because uh, as long as Gilbert and I have been friends, which is going on about two years now, I've never once gotten the opportunity to hear him teach. And so I'll get to, uh, to hear him teach next week. But uh, all that being said, um, we are, uh, we're continuing in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 2, starting in verse 13 today. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, whether digital or physical, you can go ahead and pull those out. And we'll get to that uh, in just, just a second. Um, but one of the things that, that I need to remember as a pastor, and one of the things that I need to remember as a Christian, and all of us in here, for those of us who would say that Jesus is our Messiah, uh, is to make sure that, that we are constantly checking why it is that we are motivated to do the things that we do. For example, why am I motivated to mow my lawn on a regular basis, Right? I mean, think about that for a second. Think about that maybe in your own life. Maybe you're like, I'm not motivated to it. I pay someone else to do it. Congratulations. But there's motivation there as well, right? But why am I motivated to mow my lawn on a regular basis? Now, maybe it goes back to when I was uh, 14, 15, no, no, 9, 10 years old. That's the next thing. 9, 10 years old. And uh, I grew up on, a, on an acre of, of property. We had a full acre. And my dad was really, really kind in saying, you know what? We got a full acre of land, and we are going to put so much grass all over this land that you guys can just play football and soccer. And we made a wiffle ball stadium called Grassland Stadium. That was the name of our wiffle ball stadium in my house. And, and it was great for those things. But he didn't like include the catch in all of that of, hey, we're going to plant all this grass. But when you're old enough, you get to maintain it. Now, when I'm nine or 10 years old, I'm like, this is great because we had a riding lawnmower and I wasn't allowed to touch anything that was allowed to move with a motor, right? Like outside of my bike and that wasn't motorized. And so I was like, this is awesome. I get to ride. I get to drive a riding lawnmower for an hour and a half straight. Man, I don't know what could be better. This is going to be phenomenal. And it wasn't like a cool one. It was like an old beat up one that was like the, like the original lawnmower, I think, like the original light riding lawnmower is what we had. 
But man, I would just go up and down and around, and I'm sure the lines are terrible in the lawn for those of you type A people who are like, lines are important, lines are important. I get it, lines are important, okay? But my dad, I think, was just more concerned with mowing the lawn. And so my motivation there to mow the lawn was, man, this is gonna be a blast. This is gonna be so much fun. I get to ride something with a motor behind it. And that lasted for a solid maybe three weeks. Right? Because after that, it's not like it's not like I had like a tape player that I could like, you know, jam out to whatever while I was listening. I was nine years old. And so I'm just sitting there like this is the worst thing ever. Um, and that was just the front and side yard. Uh, the following year, I remember after I was able to mow a lawn, uh, my, my parents did something really, really nice. And they put our whole backyard in, which was the biggest section of grass. <laughs> I was like, this is terrible. But then I began getting motivated to mow my lawn a few years later, not just because uh, it was fun or not just because my parents wanted me to mow the lawn, but because I had uh, friends that I wanted to go hang out with. And a lot of times when you go and hang out with people, that requires money. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to be now motivated to go and mow my lawn because once I go and mow my lawn, I'm going to get paid and then I can go hang out with my friends, right? So my motivation lied in financial gain in that sense. And now my motivation for mowing my lawn is making sure that I don't have the worst looking yard in the neighborhood, right? Like I'm not getting any financial gain from it, gain from it. My kids aren't allowed to mow the front yard because lines, right? Uh, they're allowed to mow the backyard because no one can see the backyard. So it's okay if they mow the backyard, but the front yard, uh-uh, that's my responsibility. I don't want to be the schlub on Pepper Drive uh, uh, that has the worst looking lawn in the neighborhood. So we have to check our motivations. And obviously that's, a, that's kind of a ridiculous thing that we're talking about, but we need to check our motivations on a regular basis. And our motivation can swing back and forth depending on your stage of life, depending on your state of mind. Today, like I said, we're going to take a look at John chapter 2. And in these verses, we're going to see a number of different people with a number of different motivations. But before we get there, I want you to think about your motivations. I want you to, to think, about a think for a second about why it is that you are here today. Why, what motivated you to come to church this morning? Now, for some of us in the room, and I've been guilty of this as well, it's because we do church on Sunday. It's Sunday morning. My motivation is to go and do church. That's just what you do on Sunday morning. Our motivation is tradition. Or maybe you have kids that you're like, hey, it's really important for kids to grow up in church. And so because of that, we're going to go to church and we're gonna, because our, my motivation is those kiddos that are learning about Jesus right now. Maybe that's your motivation. Maybe your motivation is sitting right next to you. Maybe your motivation is somebody who may or may not be elbowing you right now saying, see, I told you we should be at church this morning. He's talking to us about this, right? Maybe that's your motivation this morning. Or maybe your motivation, and I hope this is true, maybe your motivation is simply to come and find out more about who Jesus is and leave with some sort of practical application that you can take to the world. Whatever it is, and I may not have included your motivation there, whatever it is your motivation is for being here this morning, I just want you to think about that for a second and think about why is it that I came to church this morning? So as you're thinking about that, we're going to jump in. But before we get to the passage, we need to recognize that in this story, Jesus is going to recognize a huge issue. Jesus is going to recognize a huge issue. Now, when I say a huge issue, I'm talking about something that would be big enough for Jesus to get angry about. So a lot of times when we talk about Jesus, right, we talk about how loving he is, 
right? No, God is love and Jesus is loving. And man said to the children, hey, come to me and bring me your burdens. And man, he just, I think Jesus spent most of his time hugging, right? Well, in this passage, Jesus is angry. And I would say beyond angry, Jesus in this passage is furious because of this issue. Now, I don't know about the house you grew up in, but when yelling started happening in my home, it was a very rare occasion. As a matter of fact, I don't ever remember my dad once raising his voice to me and my brother. Probably my brother, but definitely not to me, okay? So when yelling started happening, I wasn't a fan and I was gonna try to leave as quickly as possible. But we have Jesus here with a righteous anger that is gonna be going on. So starting in verse 13, it says this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So there's two separate things going on here, okay? There's people who are selling things and people who are exchanging money, not the same thing, okay? So two separate things going on. So he made a whip out of cords. I know, it escalates quickly. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They're quoting back in the, back in, uh, the book of Psalms there. That's a messianic prophecy saying, hey, zeal from, for your house will consume me. So Jesus, he comes into Jerusalem uh, as Passover was approaching. And he, he walks into the temple courts and there are these people, call them money changers, call them merchants, call them businessmen, call them what you will. And they were selling a bunch of different types of animals. To give you context to what's going on, when, when the Jews visited uh, the temple, they went in and they did so in order to make sacrifices, in order to make proper sacrifices sacrifices, they had to have the appropriate oxen. They had to have the appropriate sheep. They had to have the appropriate doves. The purchasing of animals uh, was for ancient custom. This was demanded of them in the law for Passover. It was something that was, was demanded over them. And over time, the practice was actually subject to much abuse. Moreover, the Jews had to exchange money in order to pay a tax. This tax is mentioned back in Exodus chapter 30, but everybody was subject to the same tax. It was required for everyone who was at least 20 years old. So you're 20, welcome to paying the temple tax. So a ton of good Jewish people were making their way to the temple courts to do what was commanded to them by law and by tradition from Moses. They were doing what God had commanded them to do. They were paying the tax. They were going to get animals to sacrifice. And the tax in this case could, could be paid in advance, but those who, uh, who paid while present had to have a specific coin, had to have Jewish coin. Shocker, they're at a Jewish temple and they need a specific Jewish type of coin. So various types of coinage could have been changed at the tables. Right? Whatever coin you had in your pocket, the money changers are like, I don't care what type of coin you give me. It's coin and it's worth something, but I know you need this. 
Anybody heard of an, of, a, of an exchange rate and then a markup on top of that exchange rate in order to get paid? That's what's going on here. These money changers are like, look, give me whatever it is that you have in your pocket. I'll give you a Jewish type of coin. But on top of that, I'm going to take some of your money and put it in my pocket. I'm going to make sure that I get paid off of the things that you are commanded to do by law. So the merchants and the money changers in this case have lost sight of the true purpose of the sacrifices, which in these instances was in order for people to show their commitment to God and for people to show their, their, their desire to love him more. So whole flocks of sheep, whole flocks of oxen would have been pinned there. Wicker cages filled with doves were there. Their tables covered probably with piles of coins. And unfortunately, clearly greed and dishonesty and extortion had taken over. So when we talk about this idea of motivation, we need to recognize that greed was the primary motivation for the money changers. Greed was the primary motivation for the money changers as well as the merchants. And because of this motivation, Jesus gets furious because there are people there who are twisting what it is God had set up and using it to line their own pockets, using it for their own selfish gain. So Jesus naturally makes a whip. <laughs> he gets these cords, he makes a whip, and man, he just causes a stampede of animals and a stampede of people, and he's throwing tables over and coin is flying all over the place. He drives out the money changers, he makes the birds fly away, and I'm sure the entire place was in shock as to what was actually happening at the time. Jesus here is challenging the status quo. Jesus is upsetting the natural order of what had been made to be true for a very long period of time. This is the way we do things at the temple. And beyond that, I want you to remember that this is going to be Jesus's first public piece of ministry he was doing. Last week, we talked about Jesus turning water into wine, right? But Jesus turning water into wine, this is a private celebration. This isn't an entire town. This isn't during the feast of Passover. This isn't during any of those things. This is a private miracle that Jesus did last week. So this, Jesus's anger is the first exposure people have, the public has to Jesus. Now I've been here like 15, 16 months, something like that, right? Um, could you imagine if when I walked in, we did a, a, a whole like potluck thing and that sort of thing. If the first thing I did when I walked in was walk into the fellowship hall and just started hucking tables and was just angry. And it's like, you have, you have turned God's house into a sizzler, right? And just started tossing stuff over. Like that's not a good first look. If I want people to like me, if I want to, 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 you know, have effective ministry, man, I'm going to come in. I'm going to shake everybody's hands. My cheeks are going to hurt because I'm smiling so much, you know. I have, like, hand sanitizer in my back pocket because I touched, like, 400 people that night. And it's just like, all right, that's good. <laughs> We're done. I'm going to walk out like this, right? But if that's who I was, if that's what it is that, that I did, chances are people wouldn't be willing to listen to me. But this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus has a righteous anger here. He's like, are you kidding me? Look what you have turned my father's house into. 
I mean, this is a complete and total uproar. And he let it be known that his father's house was not a marketplace to get rich. This was a place of worship, not a place of people's agendas. So much depends on our motivation. It wasn't wrong for the merchants to sell animals and doves. It wasn't wrong to change money. However, it was wrong for them to do it with greed and dishonesty as their motivation. And as we we continue forward, what we see next isn't out of the ordinary. Because like I said before, Jesus is challenging a, a very upheld status quo. And the people who don't like it are, of course, those people who are very comfortable with the way that things are going down, the Pharisees. This is the first time we see Jesus square off with who ended up being, uh, who ends up being the antagonist in the majority of this gospel account. Now, it doesn't say Pharisees specifically here, but we can recognize that the majority of the people there probably would have been temple police. There would have been the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court of the Jews, right? Righteous Jews, righteous people would have been here at this point. Pharisees were the established religious leaders of the day. These guys would have been the ones who were holding on to the status quo that Jesus uh, was, was literally turning over. When it came to living a good Jewish life by the law, man, these guys had the market completely and totally cornered. At one point, Jesus even calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because they're pretty on the outside but on the inside, their hearts are dead and full of rotting flesh. That's who the antagonists are in the majority of here. So at this point, we need to recognize that the Jewish leaders recognize a challenge to the status quo. Anytime a status quo is challenged, anytime status quo is challenged, people get uncomfortable. That's just the way it is. People get uncomfortable when status quos get challenged. Even thinking back to January of this year, January of this year, man, we we did Vision Month. And that first Sunday in January, man, I was nervous. I was worried because, because what I was effectively doing by rolling out what God would have for our church through me, through you, as I lead our church, was upsetting the status quo. It was upsetting every single thing, at the very least thinking through every single thing that we called normal here. And I was nervous and y'all were nervous. Some people were upset. Some have left and that's okay. Because I recognize that upsetting the status quo is uncomfortable. Upsetting the status quo is hard. And I think that's why Jesus came in and decided, look, I'm going to upset the status quo. I might as well flip some tables and make a whip. Because going through and having individual conversations with every single one of these people isn't going to work. I'm going to upset this status quo. And so the Pharisees' response here, I don't even blame them for their response here. As far as we know, the Jews' response here, as far as we know, this is the first time they've interacted with Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does, he didn't give them a six-month grace period like I gave our church. The first thing Jesus did was come in and flip over tables 
and yell at them. Not a great first impression overall, but that's exactly what it is that Jesus does. They were frustrated. The Jews were confused. And this is what it says in 18 through 22. It says, the Jews then responded to him. And I'm curious how long it took for them to respond to him. Was it like after all of the oxen had ran away? Was it after the pigeons were done flying away? Was there money still scattered on the ground? We don't know. But we know the Jews at some point responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Essentially, how dare you? Show me your credentials. Jesus answered to them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So like I said, no doubt some of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the temple police were around, but John simply writes about the Jews overall. And so the Jews ask, what sign do you show us? How is it that you are allowed to do these things? What authority do you have? So they asked for a sign. We need to remember here, the Jews actually expected a very powerful Messiah. The Jews expected a very powerful savior, but they did not believe that Jesus was their their Messiah. They didn't believe it. Like, it's not that guy. We know that, he's just mad. Because of their unbelief, because of their skepticism, they demanded a sign. Like the money changers, the Jews in this instance have the wrong motives. They didn't really want to follow Jesus, so they put up the performance of a sign as an obstacle. Hey, you are who you say you are? Great, give me a sign. Show me. They wanted to put Jesus here on the defensive, but instead of performing another sign, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And so, So what he did here is he pointed to a future sign. He was not like, hey, I'm gonna give this to you right now. He's like, no, 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 no. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Obviously on this side of the resurrection of Christ, we recognize he's not talking about the physical temple that that they are standing in having this conversation. He is talking about his body. He's talking about the fact that, hey, kill me and in three days I will raise again. I will put this temple back together again. We need to think then to the motivation behind the Jews getting so upset with Jesus. Because on this side of the the story, we understand that Jesus' anger was present because the temple was being used for individual gain. We understand that. But if we think about it, all of the Jews should have been excited about what Jesus was doing. All of them should have. But that simply uh, wasn't the case. And the ones who challenged him weren't happy about this because the Jewish leader's motivation was power. The Jewish leader's motivation was power here. We can appreciate all that Jesus does. His power, it's a sign that strengthens our faith. In the same way that people at the wedding feast wanted to know who it was that turned the water into wine. Man, who, 
who is doing, who did that? And, and because they found out that the bridegroom, Jesus, was the one who changed the water into wine, people began to believe in who he was. So the miraculous, a sign from them, shouldn't have been out of the ordinary. But beside from, from our hope in seeing divine miracles, from their hope in seeing divine miracles happen, and Jesus interceding, man, their motivation still needed to be correct. And in this instance, their motivation was not right. Even for us, the real issue is proper devotion. The real issue is faith. The real issue isn't simply Jesus coming to intercede on our behalf every time we want him to. The money changers were wrongly motivated. The Jews were wrongly motivated. It wasn't wrong to change the money. It wasn't wrong to rejoice over signs. It wasn't even wrong to want signs. But to do these things from wrong motivation was wrong. So this whole thing is going down. And in the midst of it, Jesus recognizes something incredibly important to the story and something incredibly important to recognizing who we are as men and women. Jesus recognizes next that the, the hearts of men are fickle. And by fickle, I mean that at one point we want one thing and then five minutes later, we want something else. We want to be skinnier and then five minutes later, we're stuffing our face with a bag of leftover stale Doritos. The hearts of man are fickle. We say, well, this is what John says about it. 23 to 25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. People saw Jesus's power as the days went on. They recognized Jesus's power overall. They saw the miracles he could do. And because of that, people believed in his name. But Jesus at this point is rightfully skeptical. Jesus rightfully uh, so doesn't trust himself to them is the way it's phrased because he knew the only reason they were hanging around is because he could do cool God stuff. That's why they were hanging around, which means that seeing the miraculous was the primary motivation for the, for the masses. Now we're gonna hang around Jesus because he's gonna do something cool pretty soon. If you just hang out long enough, Man, this cup of water I got, it's going to be wine. You just wait. That was their primary motivation. They wanted to see the power. They wanted to see the healings. They wanted the show from Jesus, but Jesus knew their hearts weren't in it. He knows that inside of them, inside each and every one of us, is a fickle and sinful heart. And he didn't need anybody to remind him about this. Because Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was there in the midst of creation. He knew the hearts of man and they weren't pretty looking hearts. And before we get too comfortable thinking that all the Jews there were in the wrong, we need to consider what our hopes are for Jesus. What are our hopes for him? How often do we as believers cry out to Jesus only when something is wrong? 
Only when we're walking through something difficult, only when we get cancer, only when we get hurt, only when we get financially strapped, that's when we cry out for the power of God. All of a sudden we're like, hey, I have no other options at this point, so I guess God is the one that I need to go with now. And then when things are good, we go back to being lackadaisical about who Jesus is. America loves this version of Jesus, by the way. And before anyone claims that I don't love living in America, 100% do. Proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. But America loves this version of Jesus. We love relying on him when we can no longer rely on ourselves. When we've run out of options, we run to him as quick as we can. And that's not who Jesus is. That's not why Jesus came. We need to remember the point of John's gospel overall in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is still on task here as he's recording this story. The aim of this book is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's crucial that John clarifies that not everything that looks like faith is actually faith. And that's a hard reality for us to understand. Not everything that looks like faith is actually faith. These people who are hanging out with Jesus at the end here, these Jews who are saying, hey, show us a sign, show us a sign. Jesus says, hey, look, they, they aren't real believers. I'm not trusting myself to them because I know the hearts of man. All they're looking for is more miracles. That's all they want. So not everything that looks like faith is really faith, and that's unsettling. But that's the way life is. And it's better to have Jesus point this out and help us to come to terms with it than discover it on our own when eventually it's going to be too late. And because of that idea, we need to understand the motivation behind our decisions reveals the state of our hearts. The motivation behind our decisions reveals the state of our hearts. Now, don't pack up. I know that's your last note, but do me a favor. Don't pack up yet. The motivation of Christians is supposed to be the exact opposite of what motivates unbelievers. Should be the exact opposite of that. For one thing, our sense of motivation, our inspiration really is what, uh, it, it should come from God, not from the things of this world. Actually, David spoke about, uh, about his motivation in, this, in the book of Psalms. He says, I desire to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. His motivation is to do the will of the God. The world, though, everything around us, culture, even our own hearts, is motivated by self. It's the all about me syndrome, which is identified by kind of self-determination, self-obsession, self-worship. The Bible doesn't teach us to be centered on ourselves. 
Actually, the Bible teaches us the exact opposite. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus is flipping things on its head here. As followers of Christ, we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We recognize, though, the cross was an instrument of death, right? Like these guys, so everybody knows we're Christians. Those are instruments of death. We're celebrating the way that Jesus died with those things. And so when we recognize then that those are instruments of death and Jesus says, hey, take up your cross and follow me, said, take up your instrument of death and follow after me. Because if you follow me, this is what you have to do every single day. You have to die to yourself every single day if you are going to follow me. That's exactly what it is for those of you who signed up for Christianity. For those of you who said, yep, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what you signed up for. To say no to yourself and say yes to Jesus every single day. Jesus set the example for our motivation in this life. Jesus was concerned with pleasing his father and his father alone. So much so that, man, you, you go, to the, go to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying, just, just praying to God to, hey, pay, take this cup from me. Please take this cup from me. I don't want to die. I don't want to do this. But, Father, if it's your will, I'm in. I'm going to do it. And over the course of the next few days, we see Jesus' trial, his death, his burial, and eventual resurrection not because it's something he wanted to do, but because it's something he knew he had to do. In the same way that if you have said yes to Jesus, it is not something we want to do, which is die to ourselves on a regular basis. It's hard, it's frustrating, but it's necessary if it, we are going to follow God with that. So what does it look like for us to be motivated by the same concern that John has, the same concern that David has, the same concern that if you read some of the books that Paul wrote, so the same concern that Paul had. It looks like us checking the state of our heart on a regular basis. Why do we believe the things we believe? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we make the choices that we make? And if I'm going to be honest, church, a whole lot about what we do has to do with our own preferences. If our motivation for doing things the way we want to do things is to make us feel more powerful, is to make us get richer, is to make us see flashy things, then we have a motivation problem. If our motivation is our comfort, we're falling woefully short of what Jesus wanted for the local church. To go back to the idea of the church and, and when I began changing things here, a lot of pushback has come from our own feelings and our own preferences. And I'm just going to call a spade a spade. The things that make us feel comfortable, and not just in this church, but in most American churches, our preferences tend to be the motivation behind our decisions what we want, what feeds me, 
Everybody ready to get uncomfortable? What music is played? And that's frustrating. Some of the things that drive me crazy is when people tell me that the church isn't meeting my needs. Or ask me, how, 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 how is the church feeding me? Or says, what about me? My frustration in that lies with the fact that we are thinking all about ourselves. And church, we have little to no concern with those people who are outside these walls. People who don't yet who know who Jesus is. And I can tell you, if you have a relationship with Jesus and the reason you chose our church is because it suits your preferences, you're going to have a frustrating time here. I'm going to have a frustrating time here. And that's okay because I recognize that this church is not about my preferences. The local church is not about your preferences. The local church is about making God look good and Christ well known. That's what the local church is about. And so we have to check the motivation of our hearts. And if I'm going to be real and I'm going to continue to be real, I will stop at nothing short of sin to make sure that people who don't know Jesus enter into our church. And if you have an issue with that, you're going to be frustrated. And that should be the, the same tenacity, the same fire that every single person who calls Christ their savior should feel. Because, because my job as a pastor, my job as a pastor is to make sure, it, it, my job as a pastor is not to appease those who are already in here. My job as a pastor is not to make people comfortable who already call Jesus their savior. My job as a pastor is to empower the local church to make God's name known. And the way that we empower the local church is not by your preferences. It's not by my preferences. See, the most important people in our church, you want to know who the most important people in our church are? The next hundred people to walk through that door. Those are the most important people in our church. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you need to check the state of your heart. You need to check your motivation. The church isn't about you. The church isn't about me. The church is about one thing and one thing only. It's making Christ's name known, period. You know how incredible the church is supposed to be? You know the church is God's plan A for revealing himself to the world, his plan A, that it's our job to make him known. If we have a, as a church looked at our motivations and realized that they need to make Christ look good and God well known, if they aren't that and only that, then we have a problem. The American church has suffered far too long because our motivation is our comfort, not the proclamation of the gospel. And the disciples got a front row seat to what this looked like as Jesus was crucified. But on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he invited all to them to an upper room where he would establish communion for the first time. And we do this every month here at, uh, at FBH. It's our tradition. There's no law saying when you have to do communion or how you're supposed to do communion or anything like that. Jesus simply says to do it. And when you do it, remember me. So I'm going to invite the ushers. If you are an usher, a member of the diaconate who's serving communion this morning, I'm going to invite you to head to the back. I'm going to invite... Uh, Kyle and Bobby to come onto stage.
And as they're getting into place, I just, I want to take a second and, and church, I just, we bow our heads and close our eyes. And I recognize with eyes closed, I recognize that's a hard word. And I recognize that can be a frustrating word. And I recognize that it frustrates me as well, that my preferences get in the way, that even my motivation needs to be reevaluated every single day of my life. And so I'm not trying to call out individuals. I'm trying to call out the body of Christ to be better. And so, Father, we are thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your son. But Father, I pray it would be go beyond gratefulness. I pray it would, be, it, it would move to action. That we recognize, God, that it's not about our preferences. It's not about, it's not about us. It's about the next 100 people who walk through that door who don't yet know you. It's about our neighbors who haven't yet proclaimed your name. It's about our coworkers. It's about our family members. It's about you, God. It's about your son. And God, there may be some in here who don't yet know who you are. If that's the case, I just want you to pray along with me. If you want to make a decision for Christ and put a flag in the sand and say, yep, I want in. Because I recognize it's not about me, it's about Christ. So I just pray that A, just pray along and say, A, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I mess up every day, God. And I'm sorry, I want to represent you and I want to represent you better. B, I believe you sent your son to the cross on my behalf, that he conquered death. And it's that news that allows me to share in the suffering, to take up my cross, because I believe that your son did it and that I would choose to follow you every day. Not because it's easy, but because it's worth it. Not because it's easy, but because it's right. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.